the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Chris Thurman. He's the author of The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is. He'll be joining us later this hour. Well, a conservative-backed plan to repeal the bulk of Obamacare and give lawmakers a two-year window to replace the struggling health care failed on the Senate vote today uh, in the latest setback for the repeal push. This was the repeal and replace effort in the Senate. The vote was 55 to 45 against the amendment, with uh, seven Republicans opposing. The chamber's 46 Democrats and two independent senators all voted against the measure. The so-called straight repeal amendment offered by Kentucky Governor, or rather Kentucky uh, uh, GOP Senator Rand Paul, would have given senators two years to come up with a replacement. The measure failed on the heels of another sweeping Obamacare overhaul amendment uh, stalling overnight. Uh, the votes highlight the difficulty that Republican senators are, are having trying to hammer out an actual replacement plan, even after advancing a core bill to debate in a dramatic vote yesterday. Well, the straight repeal was essentially identical to the one that the GOP-controlled Congress sent back uh, to President Obama in 2015, who immediately, of course, vetoed the bill. Senate Republicans drafted their first repeal measure of this season several months ago. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell at first wasn't able to uh, get enough support to even hold a vote. Uh, however, on Tuesday, he managed to garner enough backing to open debate on that bill with the expect- expectation rather that lawmakers would be able to vote on a slew of amendments. The successful test vote was uh, helped in no small part by the dramatic return of Senator John McCain, who voted to start debate upon returning to the Capitol for the first time since being diagnosed last week with brain cancer. He also said he didn't intend to vote in favor of it. The amendment process um, has been rocky, to put it mildly. Senators on Tuesday night blocked a wide-ranging proposal by Republicans to repeal much of Obamacare and replace it with a more restrictive plan. In Wednesday's vote, Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, John McCain of Arizona, Rob Portman of Ohio, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Dean Heller of Nevada all voted in opposition with members divided. Republicans may now move uh, to attempt to pass what what's being referred to as a skinny repeal. That plan repeals just a few elements of Obamacare, like the individual and employer mandates and the taxes on medical device makers. Well, during a rally in Ohio yesterday, rather last night, the president issued a warning to Republicans who were on the fence about repealing Obamacare. Any senator, he said, who votes against repeal and replace is telling America that they are fine with the Obamacare nightmare, and I predict they will have a lot of problems, end quote. Again, the president speaking yesterday. Well, I suppose the big headline news today is uh, a series of tweets from the president on a rather uh, weighty subject. President Trump touched off a firestorm today after 
tweeting that he wants to ban transgender people from serving in the U.S. military in any capacity, citing advice from his generals and medical costs. In a series of tweets, he wrote, after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender uh, in the military would entail. Thank you. End quote. Well, the president, uh, his tweets uh, came only a few weeks after Defense Secretary James Mattis said that he would give military chiefs another six months to conduct a review to determine if allowing transgender individuals to enlist in the armed services will affect the readiness or lethality of the forces. The deadline for that review was December 1st, 2017. The National Center for Transgender Equality said in a statement, this is uh, worse than don't ask, don't tell. Uh, Of course, they oppose the idea. The Family Research Council applauded the president for keeping his promise to return the military priorities and not continue the social experimentation the Obama era uh, had engaged in that had crippled our nation's military. Uh, Representative Steve King, a Republican out of Iowa, said that we don't need to be experimenting with the military. Uh, Plus, there's no reason to take on that kind of financial burden. Well, there's some question as to what this uh, uh, series of tweets means in light of other developments, namely the six months that was given for um, heads of military branches to uh, to study the impact. Uh, But nonetheless, the president has made that pronouncement. I'm not sure what happens next Uh, But we'll certainly follow the story. Liberty Council, uh, in response, wrote that the Obama era policy would have allowed incoming service members identifying as transgender to enlist if they have been stable in their gender identity for 18 months. Transgender service members have been able to serve openly in the military since last year when former Defense Secretary Ash Carter ended the ban. Since October 1st, transgender troops have been able to receive medical care, receive taxpayer-funded medical treatment that includes hormone therapy, counseling, and body uh, mutilating plastic surgery. So it does include the uh, transition surgery. President, The uh, president does have the power to direct his generals to prioritize unit cohesion and military readiness rather than sacrificing them uh, to the demands of the transgender lobby. Several Army soldiers and civilian employees also recently contacted Liberty Council for assistance for objecting to being forced to participate in LGBT training based, uh, based rather upon their religious beliefs and conscientious objections. These include an Army major, a graduate of West Point, a former special ops high-level Department of Defense employee, and aerospace engineers, plural, and other military and civilian employees who objected to the president's transgender policies that didn't just permit individuals to serve, but subjected everyone else to this um, uh, training uh, based on the uh, uh, their religious convictions. Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of the Liberty Council, uh, said the military is a lethal weapon designed to protect America and our allies. It's not a social club, a social experimentation, Petri dish or Club Med. Again, we'll follow the story to see what the president's pronouncement via tweet uh, may actually mean moving forward. One study uh, in a, uh, an article published by CNS News um, said that the uh, the military will save some $8.4 million annually. That's unconfirmed. But this study, uh, apparently um, conducted by, the, uh, by RAND, indicated that $8.4 million per year is what it would require to maintain the current policy. Trump has uh, made the Department of Defense temporarily ban 
um, the, uh, the temporary ban, rather, into a permanent one. The RAND Corporation, a public policy research organization, conducted the study last year to assess the implications of allowing transgender personnel to serve openly. The study found that there is an estimated 1,320 to 6,630 transgender individuals currently serving in the military. I've heard uh, wide-ranging disparities in those numbers. But the research center calculated transition-related health costs for transgender people to be as much as $8.4 million annually. The president's decision will alleviate taxpayers of that cost, as well as any disruptions or lost service caused uh, by the surgeries. Um, Using private health insurance claims data to estimate the cost of extending gender transition-related health care coverage to transgender personnel indicated that active component health care costs would increase between $2.4 and $8.4 million annually. RAND's study ended with a recommendation that the Department of Defense should ensure strong leadership and identify the uh, and communicate the benefits of an inclusive and uh, diverse workforce uh, to successfully implement the policy change. So they were not um, taking a position, an ideological position, but were providing um, information on the cost of the policy change under the previous administration. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Chris Thurman. His book is titled The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is. Well, the top information technology aide to Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, was arrested on Monday attempting to board a flight to Pakistan after wiring $283,000 from the Congressional Federal Credit Union to that country. The former Democratic Party chairwoman's IT aide attempted to leave the country hours after uh, an investigative group revealed that he is the target of an FBI investigation and the agency apprehended him at the airport. Credit union officials permitted the wire to go through and his wife was already fled the country, fled to Pakistan after police confronted her at the airport and found $12,000 in cash hidden in her suitcase, but didn't stop her from boarding. Court documents show on the 18th of January this year, an international wire transfer request uh, form was submitted at the Congressional Federal Credit Union at the Longworth House Office Building in the District of Columbia in the amount of $283,000 to two individuals. Um, one of the individuals, a Pakistani-born IT aide, had access to all emails and files of dozens of members of Congress, as well as the passwords to the iPad of Wasserman Schultz used for Democratic National Committee business before she resigned as its head in July of uh, 2016. In March, his wife, who also uh, was on the House payroll, withdrew her children from school and left the country, the affidavit said. The Capitol Police confronted her at the airport but could not stop her. U.S. Customs and Border Protection conducted a search of her bags immediately prior to her boarding the plane and located the total of $12,000 U.S. Uh, cash inside. She was permitted to board the flight to Gutter, and she and her daughters have not returned to the United States, the affidavit said. Well, soon after um, Imran, one of the Uh, subjects in question began working for Wasserman Schultz in 2005. Four of his relatives appeared on the payroll of other Democrats of inflated uh, salaries, but Democratic uh, staffers said they were rarely seen at work. They collected $4 million in taxpayer salaries since 2009. House authorities told members in February that Imran and his relatives were suspects in the criminal investigation into theft and IT abuses, and they were banned from the capital network. Wasserman Schultz has refused to fire Imran, 
despite being no, a known criminal suspect in a cybersecurity probe for months and has blocked Capitol Police from searching a laptop they confiscated because it was tied to him. Well, the Daily Caller News Foundation uh, reported Sunday night that the FBI had joined the investigation, seized, smashed hard drives from Imran's house. And the next day, the FBI apprehended him at Dulles Airport after noticing that he had uh, purchased a ticket to Pakistan via gutter. Well, the uh, affidavit says he was charged with bank fraud involving fraudulently taking out mortgages, which was one of several financial schemes. Um, It appears to be a placeholder. Uh, for future charges spurred because of the attempt to leave the country and does not mention his work for Congress, which is the investigation's primary focus. Some are questioning whether or not uh, this may be the source of DNC leaks, um, given the uh, the access that he and other family members had and the fact that they are now uh, being looked at as um, having abused their access. As the Daily Caller News Foundation has reported, the Awans uh, own numerous rental properties that often have multiple mortgages taken out on them. They have told renters they want payments in untraceable ways. The charging documents say that the wife, uh, who also made $165,000 working for House Democrats, took out a second mortgage against a house from the Congressional Federal Credit Union by falsely claiming it was her principal residence and that she will occupy the property and also fraudulently reported no rental income on her taxes. Well, it goes on from there. Dozens of people have uh, uh, dealt with Imran um, uh, painted a picture in interviews with the Daily Caller News Foundation of a charming, cunning extrovert who bragged about his powers, uh, his power rather, among Democratic officials and who seemed to have an unquenchable thirst for cash and access to information. The affidavit also paints him as an overly confident con artist, saying he listed his house phone number when initiating the wire transfer and pretended to be a woman, his wife, on the phone when the Congressional Federal Credit Union questioned the transfer. And again, it, it goes on from there. Uh, anyway, this this has been an ongoing story for quite some time, particularly because Wasserman Scholz was unwilling to cooperate with authorities who had clearly identified him as a, a, a threat and a risk. Uh, she was unwilling to um, tether the relationship, and we'll see what happens uh, next. But he has now apparently been apprehended. Meanwhile, there's a turf war that's broken into uh, uh, the open between two Senate committees doing the deepest digging into alleged Russian meddling in the 2016 ele- uh, election. Rather, Tuesday's turf battle revolved around news from the Senate Judiciary Committee that issued a subpoena for Paul Manafort for a time Mr. Trump's campaign manager in 2016 to appear at a Wednesday hearing. The Senate Intelligence Committee, conducting its own probe of the Russian meddling scandal, offered the Judiciary panel a transcript of its interview of Mr. Manafort. Fort, but the judiciary leadership reportedly rejected that offer. So late yesterday, it was announced that the Senate Judiciary Committee had dropped its subpoena for Mr. Manafort and negotiations are underway for the former Trump campaign chairman to speak to investigators. Mr. Manafort's lawyer, uh, lawyers rather, plural, are also said to be wary of the public testimony, especially since uh, the Judiciary Committee's hearing was to have focused on Washington lobbyists who work for foreign interests. Recently, Mr. Manafort had admitted a Ukrainian political party with uh, Kremlin ties paid more than $17 million to his consulting firm. 
uh, presidential son-in-law and White House uh, aide Jared Kushner, meanwhile, spent his second straight day answering questions behind closed doors about his knowledge of any Russian collusion a day after he issued a lengthy and detailed rebuttal to charges the Trump presidential campaign ever colluded with Russia. Mr. Kushner, he spent three hours answering questions from members of the House Intelligence Committee. Little news emerged from Mr. Kushner's meeting, but anonymous sources familiar with Mr. Manafort's interview said that he agreed to future interviews with the Senate Intelligence Committee. And so the drama continues. Well, Republicans in Congress have joined the White House in asking questions about the extent to which a Democratic Party consultant may have worked with Ukrainian officials to hurt then-candidate Donald Trump's presidential bid last year. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley wrote a letter earlier this week to the, the Justice Department asking whether the Democratic National Committee broke the law. Grassley specifically asked if the DOJ has was investigating Alexandra Chalupa, a Ukrainian-American DNC consultant who allegedly had meetings at the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C. to discuss incriminating information about Trump campaign officials. President Trump trying furiously to tamp down the controversy over alleged Russian coordination with his associates has questioned why the same scrutiny is not being applied to the Democratic uh, Democrats rather alleged Ukraine connection as well. In a tweet on Tuesday, he complained about the lack of an investigation into the Ukraine efforts at to sabotage his campaign. Uh, Prying into such claims, uh, Grassley's letter to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein flagged the deficient enforcement of the Foreign Agents Registration Act and asked why the Justice Department did not require Chalupa to register. Her actions appear to show that she was simultaneously working on behalf of a foreign government, Ukraine, and on behalf of the DNC and Clinton campaign in an effort to influence not only the U.S. voting population, but U.S. government officials, Grassley wrote to Rosenstein. We'll continue to follow this story to see what, if anything, emerges as a consequence of this latest back and forth. It's kind of hard to trace the people's business, Um, you know, things like Social Security that's, you know, got a expiration date on it, uh, managing Medicare, the health care, either repeal, replace, reform, something, um, tax reform, the economy. It's it's hard to trace those, you know, the people's business in the midst of all of this other intrigue that's going on uh, in Washington as well. Among those uh, things listed, uh, it's unconventional, if not unprecedented, for a sitting president to publicly disparage his attorney general after a mere five months on the job. But that's another Drama that continues. Nevertheless, that's what President Trump justified in his displeasure and frustration with Jeff Sessions. uh, And it has continued. Um, If he was going to recuse himself, the president said he should have told me prior to taking office and I would have picked somebody else. Well, Trump's point is this. Sessions concealed his intent to recuse himself from the federal investigation into possible uh, connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. In so doing, the attorney general effectively sandbagged the president. Well, perhaps the former senator from Alabama was so desperate for the job, he did uh, did not care that his recusal might undermine the presidency of the man who nominated him to be the nation's a chief law enforcement officer, or maybe Sessions was naive in convincing himself that uh, failing to disclose such material matter was somehow an inconsequential. It uh, inconsequential, rather, it was not. Most advised him that he had no options but to recuse himself, uh, and whether or not this will result ultimately in his uh, either being dismissed or 
um, his resignation remains unclear, but there is some discussion that uh, if, in fact, uh, he were to step aside or be asked to step aside, uh, his replacement, if he were to leave, the new Department of Justice sheriff or the secretary of state could rein in or axe the Mueller uh, special counsel. Again, another unfolding never-ending drama. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Chris Thurman, his book, The Lies We Believe About God. What do we think and what does the Bible actually say? What is Christ's example, the perfect representation of God, tell us? And why do we so often misunderstand? We'll talk with Dr. Thurman in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that um, many of us have misunderstandings about who God is. He knows us perfectly, but unfortunately, we don't always. Many Christians unknowingly accept lies about God that can critically strain our relationship with him. Dr. Chris Thurman's latest book, The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is, walks readers through a journey of uncovering the truth about who God is and in return, strengthening their intimate relationship with him. In the book, he uh, writes about the influences that affect our view of God outside of Scripture, the cost of not knowing Him well, the difference between knowing about God and actually knowing Him in relationship, and why God wants us to know Him intimately, how knowing Him can set us free to experience a rich and meaningful life. Well, my guest, Dr. Chris Thurman, is a psychologist, best-selling author, and highly sought-after speaker. He has a doctorate in counseling psychology from the University of Texas, has been in private practice for over 25 years. He has authored numerous books, including the bestseller, The Lies We Believe, and conducted hundreds of personal growth seminars for churches and corporations around the country. He and his wife, Holly, have been married for 36 years. They have three grown children, live in Austin, Texas. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Is. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thank you for having me on. Now, your first best-selling book, The Lies We Believe, um, doesn't focus so much on how we misunderstand who God is and how we oftentimes take our cues from sources other than Scripture. Um, why the lies we believe about God? Well, I've always had a, uh interest uh, throughout my 40 years in the counseling field uh, in faulty beliefs that I think cost people spiritual health emotional uh, well-being, and this is the ultimate version of my interest in lies that we believe, because I don't think there are any more destructive lies than the ones that we believe about God. Now, the the use of the word lie is a very strong one. It's not misunderstanding. It's not misconception. Describe what you mean by lies that we believe about God, because that implies that we are being told something that's false and we accept it. Yeah, it is a strong word, Georgine, and yet um, I purposely use it because I don't want any of us to be lulled to sleep uh, about it. Um, Even if you are just a few degrees off from the truth, to some degree you are believing a lie, a falsehood. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the enemy works in rather nuanced ways, so... You know, very rarely will we believe something that is just a bold-based lie, but we certainly buy into faulty views of God that just don't square up with the true reality of who He is. 
Now, you focus specifically on 10 such lies, and one of the the reasons that you make this an important issue is that if we are mistaken about who God is, it has very serious implications. Well, it does, and um, I I just, uh, I'm trying to use the book to really, again, heighten people's awareness that you, we, we cannot afford the luxury of a faulty view of God because we end up either running from Him or resenting Him or doubting Him. And uh, I just think it's critical that we understand that a faulty view of the Almighty is going to cost us a sense of what His attributes really are and that we can have peace, that we can have joy, we can have contentment in our relationship with Him. Your first chapter is titled, How You View God is the Most Important Thing About You. I think sometimes we underestimate the importance of having a clear understanding of how God reveals Himself through His Word and through His Son, and that it's it's significant about who we are as well. It is, and... Um I think that uh, title is, I stole that from A.W. Tozier, (laughs) and I I think that's accurate. I do not believe personally that there is anything more important than how you view God. And I think there are factors working against us from the time that we get here uh, in terms of us not seeing Him accurately and in a uh, honoring and high and lifted Mm -hmm. up kind of way. Now, as I mentioned, you choose 10 lies um, to include in the book. I suppose there are others, but why these 10? Well, after I got the book finished, Georgine, it occurred to me that what uh, God had led me to do without knowing it was talk about the lies that actually are an attack on His attributes. So I ended up realizing that after the book was finished, is that every lie is designed by the enemy to get us to question these core attributes of God, so again, that we won't have a loving, intimate relationship with Him. What your um, your book suggests is that God can be known, that He intends for us to know Him as He truly is. And so we're not we're not engaged in a quest uh, that's impossible, but God reveals himself to us intentionally, um, and, and therefore we can find satisfaction in, in ultimately uh, knowing him as he's revealed himself. I think, um, I, I don't want to pretend to speak for God, but I just view him as so desirous that we know him, and that he is not withholding important insights into who he is, because he he wants us to know him for who he is, and he doesn't want to be um, hidden from us. He he wants to, to, um, you know, again, he wants us to see him for who he is, and he wants us to know that he knows us perfectly for who we are. Well, let's talk about some of these um, lies that we tend to believe. Uh, One of them is that um, uh, God's love has to be earned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I think a lot of us struggle with that one. I think a lot of people fool themselves into thinking that because intellectually they know that's not true, that they don't believe it. But a lot of us, you know, being raised in a world that offers conditional love at best, I think a lot of us project that onto God, and we really fall into thinking that the love of God can actually be dented 
by us, that it could be raised or lowered by us. And so this one particular lie is one that I have struggled with throughout my life. I see a lot of my clients struggling with it, and I think it leads to a kind of a legalistic a doggedness about trying to get God to love us that he already does. It's who he is, and it doesn't depend on us at all. Mm. Is it a, a misunderstanding of the concept of grace or or what Christ was, was charged with doing and did well while he was here? Or is it a, a, a bit of arrogance that somehow we can rise to the occasion and, and please God because of who and what we are? Yeah, I think it's all of the above, Georgine. I I think it's a misunderstanding of grace. Uh, I think it's a pride on our part. Uh, I think it's, for many of us, it's a, I just can't accept that I don't have any role in this. So, you know, I'm going to put myself back into the equation, and I'm going to tie the love of God to my behavior, which I think is a rather demeaning view of God, that His love is actually raised or lowered by whether or not we're behaving ourselves, I, that, that's, not, uh, that's not a high view of God, and that is not a, a deep understanding of what His love really is. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. So stay with us. Again, we're talking with Dr. Chris Thurman. His book is The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is. The book is published by David C. Cook. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Chris Thurman. He's the author of The Lies We Believe About God, Knowing God for Who He Really Is. One of your chapters is on the subject of... Um, or the lie that God ignores our disobedience. And sometimes it's difficult to reconcile uh, my God's love for me is earned. And then God ignores my, my disobedience. Um, but talk a bit about how those two things are consistent and true about the nature of God and his relationship to us. Well, I, I do think uh, those are not inconsistent qualities mm-hmm. of God. I do believe that his love is, cannot be earned, it cannot be uh, raised or lowered, but another aspect of God's love is that he disciplines those whom he loves. So it's actually, if you want to call it God's wrath, that's actually a reflection of his love. Uh, We as parents know that you're not really loving your kids if you ignore their disobedience, because then they grow up rather wild and out of control, and they're going to be damaging human beings. So uh, the wrath of God, that that he cares too much to ignore when we won't repent of destructive behavior, uh, I think is just another consistent quality of his that does not... um, take from or add to any of the other attributes. We live in America. It's the 21st century. One of the lies that you write about is that God is essentially Santa Claus coming to town. The lie is God gives us everything we want in life. And somehow we question his character. We question his love for us if we don't get what we believe we are entitled to. Talk a bit about that lie that is so popular in America and I suppose elsewhere today. Well, I do think we have a tendency to equate God with Santa Claus. So I do think, based on the naughty or nice principle, that we do think if we're behaving, that God somehow is obligated to give us what we ask for on our wish list. 
But in that chapter, I try to go into that God is, in fact, a gift giver. But his version of being a gift giver is that he, he gives us everything that is perfect and appropriate for us. And therefore, that means sometimes he will not give us what we're asking for because he knows it's not in our best interest. So he is a gift giver, but he's not some overindulgent grandfather that's going to give you everything you want just because you want it. Another of the lies that you expose in the book, and of course our conversation doesn't reflect the depth that you go into in the book. Uh, Your readers will enjoy certainly more than our conversation, but another is that God sugarcoats the painful things that he wants us to face about ourselves. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I could be wrong on this, Georgine, but um, I've been in the counseling field for 40 years, and I really see a trend over the years of people being more and more resistant to having the truth spoken to them. Mm. Uh, And I just see this kind of, um, for lack of a better word, this narcissistic arrogance that a lot of people have, that you're not going to point out anything's wrong with me. And if you do, I'm going to get either defensive and or come back at you. And so in that chapter, I just try to go into uh, the idea that, and I use uh, three different stories from the encounters that Christ had with people to where he was never abusive with truth. He, he was never demeaning or shaming, but he was unflinching, and he did not pretty things up for people uh, because, you know, he was going to feel responsible if they couldn't hear it. So I do think God is a truth speaker. I do think that he loves us, again, too much not to be uh, clear and honest with us about things that we need to face and that we need to quit being in denial that certain things are needing to be repented of, turned from. Um, And I think even in a human relationship way that we are hesitant in this day and age to risk speaking the truth and love to others because we can sometimes get such a a horrible response. Yeah, yeah. One of the chapters as I was preparing for our our interview uh, that I really had to, to look closely at, because at first I look at the chapter titles, and I wondered, where where is he going to go with this one? It's the All chapter right. titled, God Changes Us. That's the lie, that God changes us. We know, mm-hmm. for example, that Jesus said that he's going to continue the work that he began in us until it's complete. Explain that chapter, and as I went there and, and read it, it made sense to me, uh, but I think it, it bears some explanation. Well, that was a risky chapter, and um, I think it's a chapter that comes out of my clinical work because a lot of my clients fall into this, you know, I know God can do a miracle and that He's going to change me, and then I see them not putting any elbow grease into it. So what I'm trying to accomplish in that chapter is God is not going to do our part and we can't do His. So when he rebirths us, that's him doing his part. When he empowers us, that's him doing his part. But we have to be willing to work hard on what God commands us to do, specifically, I think, the spiritual disciplines. I think we have to really commit to practicing the spiritual disciplines as our part in the change process. So from my perspective, it's a dance between us and God. And again, he's not going to miraculously remove a character defect from us. I think he says, okay, do you want to get well? 
well, I'm ready to help you, but I'm not going to do, you know, 100% of the work. Uh, another of the chapters I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on, because I see around uh, us, particularly right now with with political confusion and uh, a lot of um, disunity in uh, in the country, uh, you have a, a chapter that's uh, on the lie that God has lost control of everything. Mm-hmm. And I see many Christians respond uh, to what's going on here in the U.S. and across the, the globe uh, as indicating they don't believe God is still sovereign and, and he has lost control. But as you point out, and I think Scripture um, also uh, says, God has not lost control of everything. Why do we believe that lie? Well, I think we, uh, you know, humanly, I think we just get fooled by what our eyes see. And when our eyes see a chaotic world, when our eyes see things being, you know, going badly and evil taking place, uh, I think we begin to question God, specifically whether or not He's still sovereign. So in that chapter, I go back to His attributes of being all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once. And I try to use that to just say, look, however it may look to your eyes, God is not out of control, but he does permit free will. So if you want to be upset about how chaotic it is, be upset at people. You know, be upset that people misuse free will, but don't be upset at God that he permits it, much less don't start questioning whether or not he's going to bring it all to a just end. Who do you think um, will most benefit from reading this book, The Lies That We Believe About God? Well, I wrote it, uh, I don't know how to say this, but I wrote it for the average um, church-going person who wants to have a good relationship with God, but um, hasn't probably uh, been in the Word enough to more deeply understand what his attributes are. So I think the person who feels like, I can just never feel like I'm close to God, is the one that I wrote it for, because I'm trying to say, well, these are 10 views that are probably causing the problem. Hmm. And, And until you are able, with God's help, to overcome the lie that his love has to be earned, or that he's lost control, or that he's a shamer and a condemner, uh, then you won't ever feel close to him. And that's the person that my heart is just breaking for, because I see so many people in bondage to a watered-down relationship with the Lord. Yeah, when there's so much more that he, he is offering us. What advice do you give to the Christian who's listening today, still struggling to believe the truth about God, uh, because their circumstance perhaps uh, tempts them to uh, to believe less of him than is true? Yeah, I just, my encouragement is, please, again, don't be fooled by what circumstances might seem to suggest. Please re-triple your efforts, not redouble them, re-triple your efforts to study God. God is the most important person that we can ever study, and the more we immerse ourselves in what his attributes are, the more we calm down, the more we don't worry about things that are happening, however bad they may be, and the more we can rest in his arms, the more we can go out there with confidence that everything's going to turn out fine. And um, so I just want to encourage folks, please 
please go into a more intense effort to know God and who He really is. Well, that's the best advice I've heard all day. Dr. Thurman, thank you so much for joining us. Jordan, thank you for having me. Appreciate it so much. And I appreciate that when we open God's Word, His Holy Spirit guides us and opens our understanding. So we don't just, it's not like reading a textbook. We have access to the third person of the Trinity to help us to, to better understand um, his reve- his revelation, rather, of himself. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. About seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Well, the IRS has finally agreed to process a... Uh, uh, the remaining nonprofit application for a, um, what is it, a Tea Party group uh, that was snared in the, uh, in the previous administration's uh, targeting of conservative groups. Uh, four years after the singling out of conservative groups for special scrutiny uh, was first revealed. So it took four years, and now they've apparently, the IRS has apparently gone through all of that backlog that they themselves created. In court filings this week, the IRS acceded to rules governing how the tax agency is going to decide whether to grant nonprofit status to Texas Patriots Tea Party which has been awaiting a decision for, uh, well, four years. The agreement doesn't mean the group will be approved, but it sets up the process for making that decision, and the presumption is it will be in a timely fashion. Uh, this does provide a path toward a TPTP. I have no idea. That's a quote from a lawyer representing the group, as well as hundreds of other Tea Party organizations that have banded together in a class action lawsuit against the IRS. And yes, that has been ongoing. We will be watching the IRS closely to ensure that TPTP does, in fact, receive their um, processing. Nearly 500 groups applying for tax-exempt status from 2009 to 2013 were subjected to intrusive scrutiny by the IRS based on perceived political activity. Most of those groups came from the conservative side of the spectrum. Investigators said organizations with words such as Tea Party or Patriots were automatically flagged. Once singled out, they uh, faced intrusive questions about their political beliefs, their affiliations with fellow Tea Party organizations, how they came up with their names, their members' political activity activities, donation histories, uh, and all that kinds of stuff of the groups uh, targeted. Uh, this is the last one uh, that is going to, this is the Texas Patriots Tea Party, TPTP, uh, that's now been approved. And so that um, that is coming finally to a close. And on Tuesday, the uh, Washington, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals struck down the District of Columbia's law that required applicants for a concealed carry permit to demonstrate a special need for self-protection, distinguishable from the general community. That's how they worded it. Well, the Supreme Court had previously struck down D.C.'s ban on possession of handguns in the landmark case D.C. versus Heller. That was way back in 2008. And a district court invalidated D.C.'s ban on carrying handguns in Palmer versus D.C. in 2014. Well, since then, the D.C. City Council enacted a law severely limiting concealed carry permits to applicants alleging serious threats of death or serious bodily harm. Living or working in high crime areas is not a sufficient reason. I mean, if you're in a high crime area and you just want to be protected, that was that didn't cut muster with the D.C. City Council. You had to, for example, be in a domestic violence situation in which you thought a threat was imminent. Well, in a two to one decision uh, reviewing dueling lower court rulings, a D.C. Circuit panel 
held that the law violates the Second Amendment, granted the challengers uh, a permit, a rather a permanent injunction against the D.C. law. Well, Judge Thomas Griffith wrote the majority opinion, which first addressed whether the Second Amendment protects the right to carry a handgun for self-defense in public. The majority concluded that even in the absence of showing a special need for self-defense, it does. In D.C. versus Heller, the McDonald versus Chicago case in 2012, the Supreme Court held that at its core, the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to self-defense, a right that predated the Constitution. Uh, Looking to those sources, the D.C. Circuit panel concluded that, and these are the same sources that the Supreme Court cited, uh, the D.C. Circuit panel concluded that this extends to carrying a handgun in public for self-defense with some limits. Now, limits included reasonable licensing requirements, prohibiting felons from possessing handguns, um, uh, barring carrying handguns near sensitive sites like schools, for example. The city argued that pre-constitutional history supports its restrictions. The majority brushed that argument aside, and I won't bore you with all of those details. But the majority also concluded that the rights to keep and bear arms are equally important. Next panel addressed which uh, uh, review standards uh, would apply in this case. The D.C. Circuit panel took the lead from the Supreme Court in Heller in that case as well. Uh, The class of citizens who can wield arms must include those with common levels of competence and responsibility. Judge Karen LeCraft, who dissented, stated that she agrees with the appeals court that uh, that have held the Second Amendment does not protect a right outside the home. In her view, the law should only be subject to intermediate scrutiny between uh, because rather D.C. is unique given the number of government buildings where firearms are prohibited. But as the. Majority judge explained in the opinion for the majority, we are bound to leave the district as much space to regulate as the Constitution allows, but no more. Several other appeals courts have disagreed with that ruling in favor of concealed carry restrictions that amount to virtual bans. Uh, This sort of tees up the issue for the Supreme Court review. The justices, by the way, they declined to take up an earlier case uh, challenging similar good reason uh, for these kinds of, of concealed carry permits over the protest of Justice Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. Thomas wrote in dissent that it is extremely improbable that the framers understood the Second Amendment to protect little more than carrying a gun from the bedroom to the kitchen. Well, if D.C. ultimately asks the the Supreme Court to take up this case, perhaps the justices will be ready to review the issue. Since there is a split among lower courts, in the meantime, the city will likely ask full D.C. Circuit Court to rehear the case. Again, this was a panel of um, members of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Kind of an interesting case. And again, ultimately, I suspect because there are conflicting opinions in the lower courts, Uh, The Supreme Court will ultimately have to resolve that issue. Well, almost 90 percent of brains examined from deceased professional football players showed signs of disease, according to a study published uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association on Tuesday. The study was conducted by researchers at Boston University School of Medicine and the Virginia, the VA Boston Healthcare System, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, or CTE, was diagnosed in 177 out of 202 subjects who had played football for at least 15 years. Now, these are NFL players. The diagnosis was uh, made in the cases of three high school players, 48 college players, nine semi-professional football players, seven Canadian Football League players, and 110 NFL players 
Only one NFL athlete who had donated his brain to the study was not found to have CTE, a debilitating disease that can cause a range of symptoms, including memory loss. It was diagnosed in 110 of 111 brains from former NFL players. Well, the NFL responding in a statement underlined that even the study's authors have called for further research and pointed out that the league had donated $200 million to medical and neuroscience research to better understand the long-term effects of head trauma and CTE. It would also be interesting for uh, to me to know of those 111 NFL brains, how many of them played which positions? Were they quarterbacks or were they people who had um, you know, much more severe contact? So there does need to be further study, but it certainly does give reason for pause when damage found in almost all the donated brains of former NFL players uh, showed evidence of CTE. Now, the report did not, or at least I didn't read uh, further into the study to determine what the 48 college players, the nine semi-professionals, the uh, uh, the high school players and so on, uh, what damage was shown uh, f- uh, for them. But you can read more about it. Uh, just uh, Google uh, the NFL players uh, damage and CTE and you can find more about it. Washington Times and other uh, Washington Post and other places uh, have more details on it. Really uh, fascinating uh, to look at. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about body hacking. It's a movement that's, um, well, it's rising ahead of the moral answers that might need to accompany it. And it also raises questions about what Scripture says about what we can expect uh, at some point in the future before Christ returns. We'll tell you more about what body hacking is and the phenomenon that's, um, well, threatening to become mainstream. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 19 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, Clark and I were having a conversation during the break. You um, actually knew the breakdown of whose brains and what positions they were associated with. Oh, I don't know whose brains, but as far as the uh, positions are concerned, they were spread throughout all the positions, but uh, 44 of them were linemen. Uh, 20 were running backs, 17 defensive backs, 13 linebackers. So these are all people that are getting their heads hit most of the game. Uh, Seven quarterbacks, five wide receivers, two tight ends, and even a place kicker and a punter. So That was 110. There was one brain that was okay. Right, right. So So, uh, even the the quarterbacks had some damage. Oh, yeah. When you you think about some of the hits that they take and, and... you know, when their head's hitting the turf and, and whatnot. Uh, yeah, but uh, it's obviously uh, there's a lot of selection bias in there because the uh, brains that were donated were uh, families thought that there was something wrong yeah, with these players. Yeah. But it's indicative that there is some kind of serious problem there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that um, um, additional information. Well, I mentioned before the break um, that body hacking is something of a phenomenon. It's a, a curious crowd that's involved in this uh, this thing. And uh, in the piece that I uh, read originally about it, and it was um, on NPR, I, uh, and then there was a link to where it had uh, appeared originally. But a curious crowd lingered around this fellow named Amal Gristoftra. Gestoftra, um, as he unpacked a pair of gloves, a small sterile blanket, a huge needle, a long line of people waiting to get tiny computer chips implanted into their hands. Well, he set up shop in a booth in the middle of an exhibit hall at the Austin Convention Center in Texas Capitol, where 
um, several hundred uh, others who call themselves body hackers. First time I heard the term. People who push the boundaries of implantable technology to improve the human body. Now, the movement invokes um, visceral reactions, brings up safety and ethical concerns, uh, veers into science fiction questions about the line between human and cyborg. But this is sort of the area where this guy at a convention center is you know, in, in uh, injecting things into people who willingly accept it for the purpose of uh, improving human condition. Well, the movement um, is uh, growing in popularity, and this particular individual is a pioneer uh, in the uh, in the area, using his own body to experiment. He's designed biosafe magnets, uh, the microchip he was about to implant into uh, to others at this particular event. The implantable RFID chips hold encrypted information and. Their unique ID numbers can be used to open doors or unlock your smartphone, which is what um, he, uh, the person into whom he was injecting this thing, uh, wanted to do. Um, uh, there was another presenter, Sasha Rose, who was working uh, a meditation booth, who expressed some concern about the whole thing and the fact that it seems to be moving faster than ethicists and others um, might be uh, prepared to go. Um, the result... Uh, of this whole technology is is rather interesting, and body hackers' view of the world is different than most people's, according to this individual who's sort of leading this movement. They believe technology has reached a point where it can improve the human body instead of just fixing what's broken. A patient, uh, he says, may someday come very soon and say, my eye is totally fine, but I want my eye to see infrared and I want my eye that can zoom and so on. Well, that kind of future where the human body is augmented by technology is the goal of many of these experiments, experiments that are being uh, voluntarily um, done on people who want to experience whatever these things have to offer. Well, um, using an LED device, O'Shea uh, is another individual who uh, is apparently demonstrating this kind of technology, used uh, LED device to test how long a device uh, can uh, be charged inside the body and actually implanted this thing so that it, it illuminated under the flesh, which you can sort of imagine. I think once people, he says, realize, oh, it's okay that my grandma has a pacemaker, people are going to start to accept this. You know, the era of transhumanism, I would say, is here. So let's accept that and then see where that logically takes us. Uh, inside a, a club where all of these uh, folks are coming together at this um, at this event, uh, they're discussing the various ways that um, the body can be enhanced, changed. Uh, you can become more efficient in how you navigate the world. Technology, says one, moves too fast and outpaces accepted social boundaries, not to mention laws. Uh, this critic argued that uh, it was part of the reason why early wearers of Google Glass were um, were criticized because people didn't really understand to know to embrace what this Google Glass could and could not do, what it's its uh, capacities were or what it was capable of doing or how people might use it. Uh, the boundaries of acceptance, says another, are a matter of our social philosophy, an area that he argued was driven by esoteric discourse without tangible moral and ethical recommendations. And that's uh, one area that tends to lag behind uh, science when we're talking about bioscience. We're 
um, this kind of technology merged with the human body can increase our capacity or can be used for nefarious purposes. A philosopher at the University of California, Berkeley, and a contributor to uh, NPR, uh, the Cosmos and Culture blog, has written extensively on what he calls cyberborgian naturalness. He disagreed that the modern philosophers dropped the ball. He says that tracking the, uh, the matter uh, would involve unpacking two questions. Is it okay to cut into human bodies for these kinds of experiments, for implantation of various devices? And how much tolerance should society have for artificially enhancing the body? Now, to the first question, um, he says he found a, a body hacking experimentation on humans ethically disturbing and couldn't fathom a doctor or any other scientist conducting these kinds of operations. And yet there's a conference in which there were people lined up for that very thing. The second question was more complicated. We don't condemn people, he says, for using glasses to see better. But we do start to think taking speed to cope with your life uh, is questionable. Now, I'm not sure that's the best example of what these uh, these biotechnologies can do, but it is an interesting question. Be those, because, he goes on to say, those kinds of judgments are an ethical question. Drawing a tolerance line uh, may always be a moving target. Well, if there's a rock star in the body hacking movement, it's uh, Neil Harbison, a colorblind artist from Barcelona who persuaded a doctor to implant a, a camera in the back of his head. Now, if you're wondering whether or not there are doctors who are willing to engage in this kind of experimentation, I suppose... This is an example uh, that would answer the question, yes. The antenna, as he calls it, essentially lets him listen to colors by detecting the dominant color in front of him and translating it into musical notes. Now, the way he tells it, a medical ethics committee in Europe had refused to sign off on the operation, but a doctor agreed to perform the surgery anonymously. And my guess is that will always be the case. Well, from it, he emerged with a camera connected to a device at the back of his skull. The lens dangles in front of his face on a rod that arcs over his head. It's kind of difficult to imagine, but it looks like an antenna. And he, as he walks the streets, he describes how he uh, perceives the world. The red traffic light sounded like a, a note. The green grass sounded like uh, a different note. The um, traffic light was an A. The grass was F. In his keynote address at the conference, he said the first time he heard those colors in his sleep, he felt truly cyborg. Now he no longer identifies as human, but as cybernetic organism. That's how he refers to himself. If we define ourselves as organisms, suddenly our group is wider, he said. We are on the same level as an insect or as a cat or as a plant. Well, he's well aware of how the world perceives him. He moved from Barcelona to New York in search of what he says is peace with another friend in the transhumanist movement. Um, uh, his partner, Moon Rebus, has an electronic device in her arm that she said vibrates when there's an earthquake anywhere in the world. Now, why you would want such a device, I couldn't tell you. But on more than one occasion, people have tried to rip off his antenna. That's part of the reason that he co-founded rather the Cyborg Foundation to advocate for cyborg rights. And no, we're not talking science fiction or one of the more popular superhero movies. We're talking about life in the 21st century. And when asked if he ever thought about just uh, taking the antenna off, he demurred. To me, it's much stronger the wish to sense what, what's around me than the fact that people keep annoying me, adding that maybe in the future, as others get new senses, he'll be considered normal. So this is a direction of uh, technology that is really being led by the grassroots, and there are medical professionals who are willing to uh, engage in helping to use this uh, technology um, to
to enhance people's, well, humanness, as they put it, uh, so that they can become uh, cyborg uh, by their definition. I noted in uh, one um, Scandinavian country, it's become quite common for people to have implanted under their skin devices that allow them to uh, enter and exit the uh, underground transit system. It was much more convenient for them to do so, and it's become uh, popular in um, for the sake of convenience uh, there. The idea of uh, convenience is one aspect. The idea that one can enhance your capabilities uh, is another, and this is the brave new world that we are uh, we are a part of, and uh, certainly interesting to uh, to observe. But does raise some, I think, serious questions about the future and the kinds of decisions and ethical and moral questions that need to be asked about uh, some of these choices. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk. Um, uh, we'll uh, bring you up to date on a couple of things. People are literally dying for the perfect Instagram uh, shot. Taking a beautiful picture. Uh, has uh, produced risk-taking behavior that's cost lots of people their lives and others have suffered or sustained serious injuries. We'll tell you about that when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about phenomenon that is uh, becoming more popular in our culture today. And oftentimes what becomes popular often has a, a side to it that's not as uh, attractive as one might uh, hope. Well, officials with Montana's Glacier National Park, which offers something of an example of uh, what I wanted to uh, bring to your attention, the fact that people are literally dying for the perfect Instagram picture or, for that matter, selfie. So this is Montana's Glacier National Park. They say a visitor who was taking photographs on the, of the scenery fell into a creek, was swept into a culvert, plunged off a steep cliff to his death. Now, a culvert is a pipe that uh, that it, the water goes into, it narrows the stream, and then it apparently, in this case, uh, went down a very steep uh, cliff. A park official said in a statement, the 26-year-old uh, from uh, Corvallis, Montana, died. They say he was uh, taking photos along Haystack Creek next to um, let's see, going to the Sun Road, which is known for its dramatic scenery and vertigo-inducing heights. He fell into the creek, was washed through the culvert that goes beneath the road, empties into a 100-foot drop down a cliff. It's a popular road. It was closed to traffic for about an hour while rangers and rescuers found and recovered the man's body. The official said the death uh, isn't considered suspicious. Falls are the leading cause of death there in the park. And people taking pictures of various kinds and in the process taking risks. William Durbin, Robert's brother, remembered his uh, sibling as creative uh, with a passion for fishing. He had a heart of gold, would do anything for anybody. He was always smiling. He was always happy. His major passion was fishing. He worked uh, so he could fish. But he was taking pictures and apparently too much of a risk. And he fell to his death. Um, Ebony Renee Baker writing uh, on the subject uh, with a headline, people are literally dying for the perfect Instagram picture. Uh, the article originally appeared on Vice Canada. It's a publication there. And she writes that after spending two hours taking photos at the Chedoke Trail in Hamilton, Ontario, a 22-year-old photographer and his friends started to head home. The trail is located in the heart of the city, is home to rolling hills, waterfalls, miles of beautiful scenery. People like to go there. Derailed by a muddy ditch blocking the main path, uh, the individuals uh, decided to take an unauthorized path down the trail. Um, the person that's um, the 22-year-old that's being featured in this story 
and his friends decided to take this uh, unauthorized path. He went first. He used rocks to gain his footing. And when he suddenly heard a scream, he looked behind him and saw his friend tumbling down the trail. She ended up hitting a chin on a rock on her way down, fracturing her jaw in three places and breaking her wrist. He regularly visits the city, uh, the city's now Instagram famous waterfalls to take photos. And that was one of the worst injuries that he'd witnessed. I did uh, have um, I did have my camera and I was taking photos beforehand. But when we were going down, we weren't taking photos, he says. But getting to those places to get those photos, that can be a little risky at times. Well, over the past few years, uh, Hamilton, sometimes referred to as the waterfall capital of the world, has seen an influx of photographers, amateur and professional alike. Search any of the region's waterfalls on Instagram and you'll be greeted by thousands of legs dangling over cliffs, selfies um, uh, overlooking towering heights. And while the risky photos garner a lot of attention on social media, and that's why people do it, the number of injuries and fatalities in that area alone is causing a stir. Last year, Hamilton's fire department had to execute 25 rope rescues from the surrounding waterfalls, indicating a 65% increase in rescues rescues from 2015, trying to get that perfect shot at some risk. There have already been several rescues this year, some resulting in injury and even the death of a young photographer last month. The issue is hardly a local one. This month alone, two siblings had to be rescued from Ontario's Scarborough Bluffs after allegedly trying to take selfies. Meanwhile, two men decked out in camera gear were arrested for climbing 50 to 70 feet uh, up Lions Gate Bridge in Vancouver. All around the world, selfie and photo deaths have increased with the main causes, including drowning, gunshot wounds, getting hit by trains and topping the list, um, falling from great heights. Earlier this year, a 21-year-old woman drowned in dam water while she and her friends took selfies on a stranded rock in New Zealand's uh, Waikato River. In March, two teenage boys fell to their deaths after taking photos on top of a cliff in the UK. And a few months after that, a man in India was killed by an oncoming train as he and friends posed for a selfie on the tracks. Getting creative on Instagram and other social media can be pretty tough, so doing something a little dangerous for a good shot can be tempting. Authorities are taking notice and they're taking steps to deter Instagrammers. Kara Bunn, the manager of Hamilton Parks and Cemeteries, uh, has been uh, driving numerous safety measures around the, the falls uh, to prevent more injuries and fatalities there. It's not worth it, Bunn says, about people taking risky photos for Instagram at the falls. I hold my breath when I watch these people. Even if you're a really seasoned hiker, if you take one wrong step or the trail is eroded, you could find yourself tumbling down pretty quickly. Well, to deter visitors from taking dangerous, unauthorized routes, a Bun's department recently put up a chain link fence, signs outlining the risks, the laws, and the maximum $10,000 fine for trespassing, and have even camouflaged footpaths with broken branches and debris. Well, she credits social media for the increase in visitors as well as risky behavior. It spreads like wildfire on social media because that fabulous photo of you standing on the falls tends to be the photo that someone else wants to take of themselves. She says uh, it doesn't tell you the story of the danger of getting there, so a lot of people may show up not knowing what they're getting into. Regardless of these very obvious dangers, adventure seekers continue to do the absolute most for Instagram pictures in dangerous areas both in and outside of Hamilton and, for that matter, all around the world. Understandably, the prospect of capturing that perfect shot often drives photographers to push the envelope further each time. Like an artist, achieving that goal can be incomparably rewarding, including financially. New York-based um, uh, roof topper, I guess it's like a roof jumper, Adrian 
see on Instagram as one of the many photographers these days willing to trapeze the rooftops of skyscrapers to capture stomach-churning images. With more than 54,000 Instagram followers, he's taking risks that many would not. According to him, one of his most standout achievements was rooftopping 432 uh, Park Avenue, the tallest residential building in the Western Hemisphere, standing at nearly 1,400 feet. The mission took him days to research, dressing up as a construction worker at 4 a.m., um, nearly getting caught by security on the roof and scaling a crane to get to the edge. When you start going up, you know what you're getting into. You already took the risk when you thought about doing it, he says. Once you think about it, nothing can stop you. That idea grows and grows, and it starts becoming more of an obsession to get the photo, and somehow you end up doing it. He says that every time he walks out of the building, he wants to do it again. It's that obsession, that adrenaline rush that drives so many people uh, to risk it all. I suppose the lack of understanding of the value of uh, of life. But he's certainly aware of the dangers, though, and knows that people who have um, died doing what he does is a reason for pause. This is what it is. You uh, you never know. It could happen to me. It could happen to anyone who's trying this, he says. I'm not the right person to say, don't do this. But if you do, just try to do it as carefully as possible, knowing that you are taking a great risk. University of Western Ontario sociology professor, um, Annabelle uh, Haas uh, recognizes how powerful social media can be in shaping people's real life decisions to take risks, saying that social media is an attention economy where there are hundreds of thousands of pictures. So young people are often willing to take risks to have a shot that will catch others attention, especially if they can't catch their attention in real regular life. From that standpoint, social media can create great risk taking and blur the boundary of when that risk is still healthy and when it's gone one step or perhaps many steps too far. And while uh, she says uh, she doesn't encourage young people to get willy nilly with their own fate, she poses the argument that risk taking is part of growing up and is sometimes necessary for success to a certain extent. The question the question is, to what extent? Uh, it ought to be taken. She points out uh, that the purpose of the rooftopper, for example, in that he um, he's often uh, able to shed light on the unknown and the boundaries, the, the possibilities for exploration um, have narrowed so dramatically that people are looking for ways to uh, to become explorers, to do something no one else has done. Uh, because that possibility and other more legitimate ways, uh, for example, are no longer the case. Says the rooftopper, uh, there's a big wall in front of you. Some people will uh, only think about what's behind the wall. We are the people who climb the wall. We see what's happening on the other side. Then we come back and show our pictures to the people that can't pass that wall, he said. I guess you're born with that. Across the border, um, they echo a similar yet more cautious sentiment. Sometimes you kind of have to step out of your comfort zone to be able to get the good shots, he says. But I don't think that you have to go so far out of your comfort zone that it puts your life at risk. And that's the difference between some who are perfectly willing to put their lives at risk and oftentimes lose uh, that calculation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Charlie Gard, the little 11-month-old whose family lost their battle to keep him alive and to give him an opportunity to experience experimental drugs, we learned yesterday, time had uh, run out, that they had waited too long to grant him the uh, the right to receive the experimental treatment, but that's the way the state acted. Dr. Michael Brown 
uh, ask the question, what Charlie Gard taught us? And there are some things that we might consider uh, in this case that my guess is we will see repeated. Uh, whether or not it, it garners headlines is another story, but we'll see these kinds of decisions being made in future. He writes, it isn't it remarkable that a tiny little baby who cannot utter a word has spoken to the world? Isn't it remarkable that a handicapped child who under normal circumstances might have lived and died in obscurity has become the focal point of a debate affecting millions? God has his ways of using the weak and the vulnerable, and he has done it again through Charlie Gard. By now, most of us have heard that his parents gave up the fight for his life, stating that the window of opportunity for special treatment was closed. This must be an extraordinary bitter pill for them to swallow, since it was their country's health care system that refused to allow him to receive uh, any experimental treatment, thereby sealing his fate. In the words of Charlie's mother, Connie, we are so sorry we couldn't save you. We had the chance, but we weren't allowed. Sweet dreams, baby. Sleep tight, our beautiful little boy. What is Charlie saying to us? First, Charlie reminds us that all human life is valuable, whether strong or weak, young or old, healthy or sick. As expressed in the mantra of the children's story, Horton Hears a Who, a person's a person, no matter how small, how true. As we looked at the pictures and videos of Charlie, so helpless and dependent, we saw a person, a special person, a person worthy of love, a person created in the image of God, and we saw this despite the fact that he could do nothing and say nothing. His worth was not found in his great riches or his many accomplishments. His worth was simply found in being a person, a fellow human being, and that is enough. Ironically, Dr. Zeus, who wrote Horton Hears a Who, was reportedly not a pro-life advocate. It appears he failed to grasp the implications of his own story, his own words. Second, Charlie reminds us of the tenacity of a parent's love. While we prayed and petitioned and cried from the distance, Charlie was his parents' jewel, their own flesh and blood, their little champion. In these days, when children are often an afterthought, if not an inconvenience, when leftists fight vigorously for the right to abort their babies, and while ethicists argue that infants suffering outside the womb should be euthanized, the devotion of Charlie's mom and dad reminds us of the depth of a parent's love. No one can hold out hope like a mom and a dad. No one can nurture like a mom and a dad. No one can persevere like a mom and a dad. There is no higher calling than being a parent. God has placed a human life into our care. Third, Charlie reminds us that the state cannot be the ultimate caregiver and the ultimate arbiter of life and death. I'm not talking here about the court sentencing criminals to their appropriate fate, whatever they uh, that may be. I'm talking about health care. To be perfectly clear, I'm the last person to offer in-depth analysis on the current health care debate or to enter into a detailed critique of Obamacare. And I'm certainly not the one to offer a better alternative to President Obama's Affordable Care Act, again, quoting Dr. Michael Brown. I'm also aware of some positive sides to the socialized medicine found in Europe, as related to me by friends and colleagues over the years. But what Charlie's case says to us, no, shouts to us, is that the courts and government cannot stand in the way of parents urgently seeking to provide treatment for their child or individuals seeking to get treatment for themselves. It's one thing if the system refuses to pay the costs of a particular treatment. We can understand that and we can gladly, uh, we've gladly lived with it for years. On a regular basis, Americans seek out alternative treatments not recognized by the medical industry, and we're willing to pay for this out of pocket. But it's another thing entirely when the system says we will not allow you to take your child for alternative treatment. That's where we must respectfully say the government, I'm sorry, but you are not God. 
Unfortunately, unfortunately, Charlie's parents had no choice but to comply with the courts since they were powerless to remove him from the hospital and transform, uh, transport him rather to a place where he could be treated in a timely manner. This, then, is an urgent lesson to all of us here on the other side of the pond. Whatever our lawmakers decide regarding health care, it can never come from something like this. The government must not play God. And finally, one last thought about the value of Charlie Gard's life. It's possible that by the time you read this, uh, these stories, uh, he will have left the world without uttering a syllable. Yet his legacy will last for years, perhaps making an impact on nations, prob- uh, probably an impact far greater than if he had lived a normal, healthy life. Here, too, we are reminded not to measure things as the world does, but to measure things from God's perspective. In his sight, what is insignificant to people can be of massive eternal importance. And so Charlie, being dead, will speak for years to come. May we honor his legacy in word and in deed. Again, Dr. Michael Brown also wanted to report that House Majority Whip Steve Scalise was discharged from the hospital on Tuesday, was removed to an inpatient rehabilitation facility after more than a month of surgeries. Representative Scalise had been treated at MedStar Washington Hospital since the 14th of June when he and four others were shot during a congressional baseball practice. Congressman Scalise has made excellent progress in his recovery from a life-threatening gunshot wound six weeks ago, the hospital said in a statement. Uh, Yesterday, he was discharged from MedStar Washington Hospital Center and is now beginning a period of intensive rehabilitation. The hospital said that Representative Scalise is in good spirits and is looking forward to his return to work once his rehabilitation is complete. The statement went on to say that he and his family are grateful for the care he received from the trauma team, as well as the other doctors, nurses and staff at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. The family also appreciates the outpouring of support during this difficult time. Representative Scalise uh, underwent multiple surgeries for his injuries. Doctors uh, and Scalise family were hopeful that he would uh, be moved to a rehabilitation center several weeks ago, but he contracted an infection and was readmitted to the intensive care uh, unit earlier this year. He's expected to be in that rehab facility for weeks recovering. So keep him and his family in your prayers. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Kathleen Michael. She's the author of A River of Tears. First person account revealed the true cost of abortion. Have a great night. Want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, 
whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.